Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. How modern mindfulness ended up with that label. Let's review what we've learned so far in the last two talks. First, mindfulness was originally introduced as a translation of the Pali word sati in 1881. Second, sati in the early texts and virtually in any pre-modern tradition means memory, but of a kind that is associated with attentiveness to the current practice situation. Buddhism is, after all, a practice tradition, and both aspects were represented in the choice of the term mindfulness. Consider being mindful to get your tires rotated, for instance. Third, modern mindfulness is something like a state of non-judgmental present bear awareness. What is missing is any acknowledgement of memory, the root meaning of sati. We also noted that this interpretation has no support, not only in early Buddhism, but also not in any non-modern Buddhist tradition. Fourth, we trace the loss of memory to the arising of the mass vipassana meditation movement, which we began in Burma at the turn of the last century. Certain schools within this movement, in appealing to a popular audience of limited time and energy, strip dhamma from meditation practice. These schools subsequently became the most popular internationally. Without Dhamma, there was nothing to remember except to stay in the present moment. A Critique of Modern Meditation The Berkeley scholar Robert Scharf views historical popularization movements quite critically and draws striking parallels between the 20th century movement in Burma and historical developments in the Chan Zen tradition in 8th century China. In the latter case, Buddhist masters in the capital city simplified meditation practice in response to demand among elite lay devotees in order to make meditation accessible to those without doctrinal training nor living an ascetic lifestyle, promising quick results and thereby promoting an effective democratization of awakening. As a result, meditation widely evolved to become a matter of setting aside distinctions and conceptualizations and letting mind rest in the flow of here and now. At the time, traditionalists in China had criticized such methods as weakening the Dhamma. However, it seems to me that teaching something as sophisticated as the Dhamma has always relied on provisional teachings that the student is able to grasp at his 
current level of engagement to be corrected later through more accurate teachings if and when the student is ready to devote more energy to understanding and practice. The Buddha famously taught this way. Given the limited time among most lay people to dedicate to Buddhist practice, and given the sophistication of the Dhamma, simplification of practice and understanding might be justified in terms of meeting the moment and producing practical benefits. Surely Mingun and Mahasi were aware of the provisional nature of the Burmese method, and Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a disciple of Jnanaponika, points out that Jnanaponika himself was aware of the provisional nature of bare attention, though there is no indication of that in his influential book. Nevertheless, one might anticipate that provisional teachings introduced into a mass movement would tend to perpetuate themselves without correction, since the number of people receiving these teachings is likely to overwhelm proportionally the number of adepts capable of guiding practitioners beyond those provisional teachings. As a result, a provisional teaching may accrue authority even among the newly adept. Vipassana in America Mahasi's technique, as well as that of Goenka, were designed to be taken up quite readily by anyone at any stage of practice in Burma and was easily exported to foreign lands. Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, and Sharon Salzberg were three young practitioners who traveled separately to Asia and studied Wapasana with Mahasi, Goenka, and others. They collaborated in the States to found the Insight Meditation Society, IMS, in Massachusetts in the mid-1970s, which came to focus on the Mahasi method. They would exert an enormous influence on the American Wapasana movement and on the development of westernized Buddhism in general. When the Mahasi method and other methods adapted for popular application in Burma encountered American popular culture, it was a match made in heaven. This culture in the Wild West of Buddhism valued personal experience and, in all of its individualism, was suspicious of institutions and external authority. Rather than promoting Dhamma, it asked that one find one's authentic voice, one's own inner truth. The early vision of IMS was of bare practice with almost no rituals nor non-meditation activities. For IMS, authority came from meditation practice itself. Moreover, spirituality was being increasingly commodified, a kind of spiritual marketplace arising in a pluralistic context in which free agents need no longer accept the authority of family traditions. One might even attend a Wapasana retreat one month 
and learn Sufi dancing the next. The term spirituality itself, as in, I'm spiritual but not religious, apparently came into vogue in the 1950s with the rise of the consumerist lifestyle with decidedly mix-and-match, plug-and-play, build-your-own tendencies, to which modern mindfulness as a standalone practice was amenable. It is therefore not surprising that meditation methods that were modular led quickly to intense personal experiences and did not appeal to doctrine would have great appeal in this modern culture. The criticism of the Mahasi method and related methods continues in some quarters in the modern West. Bhikkhu Bodhi expresses his concern that contemporary teachers seldom emphasize right view and right resolve in their understanding of modern mindfulness in favor of merely being present going so far as regarding Dhamma, quoting other teachers as claptrap or mumbo-jumbo, while their meditation is unconstrained by dogma, presumably referring to the Dhamma. Meanwhile, Alan Wallace is concerned that Vipassana had become a radically simplified teaching for the general lay public dumbed down and overlooking the richness of the Satipatthana Sutta. So what is this modern mindfulness thing now? The Satipatthana Sutta, the historical precursor to Vipassana contemplation, describes the integration of many factors into the practice it promotes, only one of which is Sati, we have the two factors of proficiency and clear comprehension brought together in the often repeated compound sati sampajanya. Both factors are highlighted along with ardency and non-distractedness, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, as the method upon which satipatthana practice is based. Satipatthana practice itself is a practice of contemplation, captured, for instance, in the phrase dwelling observant of body. Right proficiency gives rise to samadhi, and samadhi is routinely present during Satipatthana practice, according to the early texts, even if generally unacknowledged by Vipassana practitioners. Where is modern mindfulness. Among this constellation of factors, I would suggest it is the convergence of the various factors. Ardency, clear comprehension, and non-distractedness are primary contributors, since these manifest as heightened and sustained attentiveness to the present practice situation. If Modern mindfulness feels like a meditative state, then samadhi is present, or at least its antecedent state of tranquility, pasadi, contributing stability to the experience, as well as stripping away 
conceptual content and affective response. The contemplative task itself produces a receptive or non-judgmental aspect of the experience. Oddly, one factor among all of these factors seems to be at best marginally implicated in the modern mindfulness experience, and that is sati. If we are intent on staying in the present, there is little room for memory or proficiency. The Burmese method is based on the student's own experience prior to theoretical explanation, convenient for the yogi who has little time for study of Dhamma. It seems that modern mindfulness was thereby born in an historical accident when Sati's function was marginalized in popular vipassana, and the term Sati was in need of a referent. Inversely, since Samadhi's function was unacknowledged in the vipassana tradition, the meditative state that is part of modern mindfulness experience was in need of a name. It, along with its established gloss, mindfulness, was accordingly presumed to designate broadly the lucid experience of continual attentiveness to the present moment captured in the phrase bare awareness and subsuming samadhi and other factors. To compound this oddity, modern mindfulness was also presumed to be a single thing rather than something that can be broken down into individual factors, factors that had already been described and integrated in the early texts. It concerns me that clinical research on modern mindfulness, for instance, measures the subject's mindfulness on a linear scale using questionnaires like the Mindful Attention Awareness Scale, MAAS, and even seeks neural correlates of mindfulness before understanding what that concept really is. Conclusions. Modern mindfulness is an historical accident, but perhaps useful in its time and place as a provisional understanding of mental cultivation in Buddhist practice. The Buddha himself was known for adapting teachings to the moment, and I have no basis to fault the main actors in the historical development of modern mindfulness. Each met the moment aptly and in the best interests of the flourishing of the Buddha Sasana. I personally admire each of them, from the wise and compassionate Sieros to the infectiously enthusiastic young practitioners who have now matured into distinguished teachers themselves. I have no doubt that modern mindfulness practice will continue to have a large following in the West and will continue to benefit many people. I would hope, however, that its promoters will be forthright 
about its ultimate limits as a provisional teaching and make clear that it will not or will rarely produce stages of awakening as a standalone practice. Nevertheless, I think it is time that serious scholars and teachers reconsider critically this provisional teaching as the sasana matures in the modern world. We need to look beyond modern mindfulness in order to develop an accurate and complete understanding of the practice of the Dhamma in the ancient traditions. Unfortunately, Rhys David's once apt translation, mindfulness, is, I am convinced, firmly co-opted and perhaps irrevocably bound to the meaning modern mindfulness. For many of us, with Western training in meditation, when we see the word mindfulness or even sati, we automatically think modern mindfulness. I find myself doing this, and I know better. Sati is an active process, not a meditative state. This suggests that it might be best not only to shed the concept modern mindfulness from our discussion of the ancient texts, but to find a new translation for sati as well. Quite simply, scholars and teachers of traditional Buddhism no longer own the word mindfulness and must appropriate another. I've tried many alternatives and am presently quite satisfied with proficiency. This recovers, I think, what Rhys Davids meant by mindfulness, albeit in a way that frames Buddhist understanding and practice firmly in terms of skilled development and skilled performance within human cognition. Others may prefer an alternative translation. Next week, I'm going to begin a series of talks on a related subject, right sati, or what I call right proficiency. Part of this will involve showing that the word satipatthana literally means proficiency attentiveness, a method defined within the satipatthana sutta, and then applied to a certain kind of contemplative practice. It is proficiency attentiveness, not the contemplative practice that underlies right sati. To learn more about the Rethinking the Satipatthana Project, please go to sitigu.org slash chintita. That is s-i-t-a-g-u dot org c-i-n-t-i-t-a.